Slavic composers didn't always agree with Richard Wagner's revolutionary ideas about opera. Tchaikovsky went back and forth between admiring and reviling Wagner, while Janáček would criticize Wagner's unconventional compositions. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we look at some surprising ways Slavic composers shared musical qualities with Wagner. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Even when they showed contempt for the unruly Richard Wagner, Tchaikovsky and Janáček couldn't help but be influenced by his ideas. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer and musicologist Matthew Timmermans concludes our Wagner Across Borders series with an exploration of how these Slavic composers connected with Wagner. So hello, everyone. It's great to see all of you again. Uh, I'm sad to say this is our last one, but hopefully, perhaps I'll see you next year in the future. I can always hope. Just out of curiosity, I do see there's a bit less of us today. I mean, Slavic is definitely a bit of a niche in the opera repertoire, as we'll talk about. Have any of you, any newcomers, anyone who hasn't come to any of the lectures thus far? Okay, you all know me. I can be less nervous then. I love that. Um, And then I was curious, did any of you see Queen of Spades in the fall? Good. So a good portion of you know uh, the music a bit, so I won't have to really delve into the plot, although I will tell you a bit more about it in my personal interpretation of this opera because it actually happens to be one of my favorites. Although some of you have seen it will probably wonder, hmm, well, that plot is a little strange. Why might that be your favorite? So I will sort of hope to explain that to you a bit over the course of this lecture today. And maybe a bit because it's strange is maybe why I love it as well. But that might be the Petersburg aesthetic of it. Anyway, we'll get to that. Um, And then people have seen uh, Katya Kabanova before. A few of you. Okay. Well, we have some people. Those of you who haven't, don't worry. I'm going to really try to make this opera accessible for you. I may fail. If I do, uh, please let me know, and we can try and work on that a bit. Anyway, uh, as you all know, there's been four lectures in this series. Uh, We originally talked about German opera, and then we talked about French opera and Italian opera last week. Um, I'm bringing this up. This is the last in the series, as has been mentioned. We're going to see a lot of these influences uh, on the composers we're going to talk about today. So just to begin, as we explored in both German and French opera, Italian opera generally, especially in the 18th century, really dominated these art forms. And the same thing can be said particularly about Russian opera. Um, So the first Russian opera was actually composed in 1755. And when I say Russian opera, I mean an opera that was composed with the Russian language. But what's interesting to note is that it was created by an Italian composer who was brought to the Russian court because, again, this was seen as the most perhaps authentic but also the most popular version of opera being in Italian or the Italian forms and melody and things like that. So it's also important to note when talking about Russian opera, um, and I should have made this disclaimer earlier in this lecture, the Russian opera has a very complex history, particularly because um, of the influences it has and then really the Russian uh, nationals attempt to then make their own opera. And we're going to discuss this Um, and also Russia and also Czech opera, as we'll discuss. So I just want to make a disclaimer that I'm going very briefly through all of this. And so there's a lot more to delve into here, and I really do encourage you to do so, because it's a very interesting and rich history, and um, some operas that we often don't get to see, which is kind of unfortunate. So Russia has a particularly complex history, particularly with the West, the West being Europe, and I guess you could say America then was included in the West later, because it sort of oscillated between being considered a Western and modern country and then also be considered exotic and Eastern to our Western bias. And so we really see one of these major flips happen in the 1700s, and this is when Peter the Great was in power. And so what Peter the Great wanted to do with Russia was make it a Western modern power. And what's important to note is that in order to do that, what he did was he actually imported a lot of French customs, because of course at that time, France was a big international power. 
And so they thought, basically, by modeling themselves on this, they could then be well, seen as more uh, respectable and also as, again, more modern. But the process of doing that was to basically westernize themselves. This was 1700s, the early 1700s, when Peter the Great was, uh, came to his reign. So in the 19th century, though, we have a shift where basically the Russians now wanted to distinguish themselves from these European attitudes. And this is much like kind of how Wagner, when he went to France, I mean, Wagner went to France, didn't get what he wanted, basically, and then went to Germany and said, well, now I'm going to make a really authentic German opera. And so similarly, we can see this happening in Russia, because in the 19th century, we have this trend of nationalism, when a lot of these different countries want to make a distinct sound that can show how great their country is, basically, for what they've accomplished. But it has to be distinct, of course, from the other countries around them. Um, and so in the 19th century, for Russian opera at least, the answer that Russia found for this was uh, a man named Mikhail Glinka, who was an opera composer. And he composed the first continuously sung Russian opera, because before Russian opera basically was more like opera, uh, opera comique, as we saw, where it had some spoken dialogue, or like German Singspiel. Again, spoken dialogue among arias and things like that. And so this continuously sung opera was called A Life for the Tsar. And I don't, I don't believe it's ever actually come to the Met, to my knowledge, but hopefully maybe one day we'll see it. But what's important to note about this is that actually overall Glinka's style was very similar to the Italian and French models that we've already looked at. Um, and that was rather unsurprising because Glinka, after studying a bit in Russia, then went to Italy, where he learned, of course, Italian melody and all these things. And while he was there, he decided, well, I'm going to bring all these things back to Russia and then make a really uh, a, a sort of idiomatic Russian opera. What he ended up doing to do so was he added folk melodies into his operas, basically to make it give it sort of this sound of uh, being authentically Russian. Now, the little caveat I want to add here is that we can't actually trace the origins of most of these folk melodies. And why that's sort of important to note is that there may be an attempt in Russia nationalizing themselves to self-exoticize themselves so that they seem different from the other cultures around them. So it's kind of interesting how that relationship happens. To sound different from the West, they have to do things that seem exotic to the West. And of course, Glinka was very familiar with Western or Italian traditions and how possibly to do that is basically what I'm trying to point out. It's also worth noting that when A Life of the Tsar is about a historical Russian topic, um, about a Tsar, obviously. Um, and this was very important for Russian opera, particularly because uh, they wanted to create a topic that would link opera to their historical past, giving it this idea that it's existed for a long time and also is showing that you know, uh, Russian nationality has gone back a long time, basically, to give nationalistic pride as a result, to uh, feel that there is a, a long history that they're drawing on. And this didn't come out of nowhere, because we also see Wagner had done this as well, when he particularly was drawing his opera topics off of German mythology, this idea that you know, the Germans are a great people that have existed for a long time, and let's show their great stories, right? So a very similar idea like that. So what I just wanted to show you was a brief excerpt um, from A Life for, uh, for the Tsar, just so you can kind of get an idea of what this sound was. And so this is um, Antonida's uh, entrance aria uh, in the opera. And basically, it's a very, we've listened to several entrance arias throughout these lectures. And what you're going to hear in this one particularly is you'll hear a lot of coloratura, or like a lot of running lines. It will sound very sort of Italian to you. Um, but then after that, you'll hear this sort of almost folky melody come. And so, again, you'll hear this sort of tension happening between, like, the Western idioms that he's using because, A, they're popular, and, you know, you want to base it on something that's familiar to the audiences. And then also entwining this sort of this feeling of a, a national authenticity. You could hear it there, right? At the beginning, there was a lot of these running lines. There was um, very fast notes that she was singing, very typical to Italian opera. And at the end, you heard that little folk melody where it was kind of right? So why I'm pointing all this out is because like Glinka, Tchaikovsky very much reveled in Italian and French operatic styles, and particularly the operas of a man we've spoken about before, which is Giacomo Meyerbeer, who was, of course, when we talked about French opera, he was very famous for sort of creating the cornerstones of French grand opera. 
Um, and so what we're gonna hear today is really um, how his operas sound very traditionally operatic to our ears, knowing this canon so well. And what I wanna point out is this is perhaps one of the reasons why these operas, uh, these operas being Tchaikovsky's operas, are the ones that are often performed in the West, being Europe, but also here in America, is because they're very familiar to us, unlike some of the other Russian composers who were composing at that time that were trying to create more of a distinctly Russian idiom. Um, that again, doesn't always tend to gel with audiences here in America or Western audiences generally. Um, so like Glinka, we'll see that Tchaikovsky also uses folk melodies to really give us a sense of that sort of Russianness. but he'll integrate that among many of these Western tools that we've seen in these other idioms or these other and these other genres. Um, so of course, we're all here today mainly because of the title of this course, which is to talk about the Bognerian influence uh, on Tchaikovsky. And so let's explore that a little bit. Um, so you may be here, uh, actually surprised to hear that Tchaikovsky was a very knowledgeable about Wagner. Um, and this was because he wrote criticism about his music and ideas. This was during the 1860s when Wagner was publishing a lot of his essays. And those essays were translated into Russian, so Tchaikovsky would have had access to them, his, particularly his compositional ideas. We've talked about some of them, you know, the cohesive form in opera, leitmotifs, these sort of things. Um, also, it's important to note that Tchaikovsky did study many of uh, Wagner's operas, and particularly he studied Parsifal in 1884, which was six years, of course, before Peak Dom was composed. And we'll sort of see some of that influence, because, of course, Parsifal was Wagner's last opera, which incorporates probably the most of his ideas. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to note was that he even attended, actually, the opening of the Bayreuth Festival. I spoke about this um, last class, where we talked about the Bayreuth Festival opened in 1876, and was this theater meant to perform Wagner's operas? And it was in 1876 when Tchaikovsky went. So he really was there for this monumental moment and saw the entire ring cycle. Although Tchaikovsky, it sounds like from knowing all this, he'd be a huge fan, and he was about some aspects. There were other aspects that he was not so fond of. And so what he did praise was really the symphonic use of the orchestra, the chromaticism that he used, and also the richness of the textures. So really, basically the orchestra. But what he disapproved of was really the neglect for the singers and the fact that they seem to take a secondary role in Wagner's operas. And so with his operas, he really wants to bring back this sort of Italian uh, lyricism and also the orchestra really accompanying those singers and emphasizing them. And the other two things to note is that Tchaikovsky was not just someone who studied Wagner, but he studied really the larger tradition of opera. And so he did look at uh, one of his favorite operas was Mozart's Don Giovanni and then his absolute favorite opera of all time, was Bizet's Carmen. And so the Don Giovanni I point out because some, those of you who have seen uh, The Queen of Spades will notice that there was a lot of sort of Mozartian sounding music because The Queen of Spades, of course, is set in the 18th century when Mozart was composing. Um, and, but then you'll also notice there's some very romantic idioms that we also see in Carmen. Some of you might remember there's the, that theme in Carmen that comes back constantly, it's sort of the, the fate theme that Carmen's gonna be destroyed at the end. Um, but we can, a similar idea will appear kind of in Queen of Spades in the way uh, themes are used. So it's interesting to just think that he admired that opera so much. So what we're going to talk about today basically is seeing these influences in the Queen of Spades and particularly the Mozart sounds to the Wagnerian Romanticism. Um, but let's focus, as we always do, on the latter first. So now what I want to do is kind of explore some of the leitmotifs that are in the Queen of Spades and kind of what they're doing because I think there's some very interesting things going on in relation to the plot and the music. So the first leitmotif I want to introduce you to is the leitmotif of German, who is our main, our sort of anti-hero, I suppose, um, but who, of course, as in every opera, is in love with a woman. Um, we'll sort of find out. We don't really know necessarily what woman he's in love with. We'll find out, but anyway. Uh, and so here what we're going to hear is at the beginning, he comes in and is talking to his friend Tomsky and basically saying, I've seen this person. I have no idea who she is, but I'm instantly in love with her. And so what we're first going to hear is the motif associated with that love in the orchestra. You'll hear it's a very long melody. Mm -hmm. 
So what you heard was the right? And then, so we'll hear it again just to get it really stuck in your head because I promise it will be. Uh, we'll hear him sing it later as he picks it up from the orchestra when he's really confessing his feelings. So we heard it there again. Everything he sang was that particular leitmotif. Does anyone happen to actually know who this singer is? I'm just curious. I, I will be more than happy to tell you. So this is Vladimir Atlantov, who was very famous in Russia, particularly with the Bolshoi, um, who he sang with often. Um, this is, of course, during uh, when the Soviet Union existed. Um, and then he was particularly famous for this role. It's almost like every studio recording that was made had Vladimir in it, and then eventually some other people came out. But it's just important to know, I think there's three of them. Like, it's just an astounding amount. And it was partially because this role is seen as sort of a tour de force for the tenor, because it's kind of very low, and then it has very high moments. So it's kind of like, if you think of like Tristan und Isolde, where it's very hard because of, uh, for the, the Tristan part, the tenor part, it's very hard because it's A, long, but also there's this sort of baritonal quality to it, and then these really high notes. So you have to have this impressive range, and then also this sort of quality to your voice. And so he had that, and so he basically ended up singing it from the 60s to the 90s. It was just an incredible amount of time and was constantly in recordings. But so now I just want to move on briefly to another motif that's probably the most mo important light motif in the opera, which is the trecarti uh, motif. Yeah, all of you are looking like, oh, I know that one. Um, which is, of course, the motif associated with the three cards. Now, the three cards are these cards that if, uh, when you're going to gamble, it's the perfect combination that will make you win all of the riches that came from this countess who used it to get all these riches. And so we see throughout the opera that German wants to find out the secret or whatever these, that combination is. And so we do hear it in the music and it comes back many, many times. So what you're first gonna hear is um, a motif in, it's, there's three motifs associated with it. So there's the motif in the orchestra first, which is like bum, 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 bum. So you hear that, and then you'll hear trecarti, 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 which is the one you're all like, yeah, I know that one. Um, and then in the orchestra after, you're gonna have bum, 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 um, which is just another variation of that same motif. Just to make it a little bit clearer, I know there's a lot there. You heard this bum, 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 bum. So that's really associated with the countess, whom he's talking about in this line here, where he's singing. And then what you hear here is the trecarti, 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 which is literally saying, obviously, the three cards. And then at the end here, we have a little variation on this last part of it, the trecarti, and then it goes pa 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 Looking at this sheet, what I've put here at the top, this is um, German's motif of love for Lisa, or for the woman we don't know, who may not be named yet. And then here we have the Trecartney motif. They're practically the exact same. So it sort of adds this ambiguity of who is German really in love with? Is he in love with the Countess and her cards? Or is he in love with Lisa? Uh, so I'll just let you hear that quickly, and then I'll kind of explain some ideas about that. And then. So what's interesting to note is that when originally Tchaikovsky changed the short story into an opera, he actually switched the Trecarti scene and the love scene. Uh, the love scene being when um, Germán is talking about his love for this woman. So as a result, it actually 
in this way, Tchaikovsky makes it ambiguous at the beginning because, of course, Gieromann doesn't know the identity of the woman he's in love with, right? As opposed to in the short story, that's not the case. And so what we might think by doing it this way and also making these motifs so similar that they sort of collide together is that it's maybe Gieromann's really in love with the Countess from the beginning. Maybe he's using Lisa the whole time to get what he wants. And so it becomes sort of ambiguous in the way it's composed, um, which I think is very exciting. So we'll go to now my, one of my favorite scenes in the opera, which is the end of this act, where basically what happens is uh, everyone's, of course, out in the garden because it's so lovely outside in St. Petersburg. And then the storm comes. Now, this storm, the question becomes, is it a real storm? Or is it the storm of Gieromann's mind now being like, the Countess Lisa, what's going on? We don't know. It's ambiguous. Um, but so what we're going to see first is they're going to sort of tease him by saying the Trecarti uh, motif because they know he really wants the cards to win at gambling. And then what's going to happen is then we're going to hear this sort of uh, the storm. Uh, it's a kind of a motif, but you'll, you'll get it. There's flashing and the music's loud. Uh, and then what's going to happen after that is he's going to sort of sing some of the, the Countess motifs as well as the Tlaikarti motifs. And then all of a sudden, Lisa's melody is just going to flow through there as if he doesn't really distinguish between the two anymore. I'll try to point out as many as I can. motif in the background. It's in the orchestra. Countess's motif, the orchestra. in the orchestra. So what you did hear there, I know at the end there wasn't the motifs coming back, but you heard Lisa's motif, and you heard the Trecarthi motif, and you heard the Countess motif, right? And again, he's talking about, I'm making this oath that I'm going to go after this person no matter what. But who is that exactly? Are you going after Lisa? Are you going after the Countess and the money? Hmm. Well, we'll find out, and we know what happens in the end. 
so another part that I really want to talk about that's really interesting, I think, in, in this particular opera and is actually one of the main reasons I really love it, is this sort of contrast between these Russian folk songs and then all of a sudden we'll go into this very romantic, almost Wagnerian textures and uh, Western sort of melody all of a sudden. And kind of this contrast between the two. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting because it really gives us some insight into the characters, which I'll, as I take you through all these examples, I'll give you, there's this, a very brilliant scholar who makes a thesis about it that I am frankly not brilliant enough to do, but we'll read that, that quote and see what he thought, which I think is brilliant. Anyway, so in the beginning of Act Two, we really see this all come together in a very short span of time. And so the Act Two begins where we have Lisa and Paulina, and they're in basically uh, Lisa's room, and they're playing, they're singing some songs, playing some music, having a good old time. And so what we're going to hear here is immediately they're singing this pastoral, uh, pastoral being sort of music that evokes, you know, um, farmland and sort of calm scenes. And it immediately sort of brings to our ears sort of the 18th century where we know this opera set, right? So this music is trying to evoke the period of the opera, which of course this opera was composed in the 19th century, right? It was 1890, so 100 years away. So let's just listen to that. So it's very distant from where we came at the end of Act One. Act One, we have this like in this very romantic, almost quasi-Wagnerian music with these these big clamors and bashes, and then also this beautiful textures in the orchestra. And now this very simple texture, pastoral, with just the piano and voices, right? Trying to evoke the period. So then, what happens after this is basically uh, Paulina says, "Oh, Lisa, you don't look so happy. I want to play you a song that will make or one of your favorite songs." And so uh, Paulina, who's our sorry, is our mezzo here. Um, she plays this song on the piano, which is basically about a girl who says, everyone is happy around me and they're enjoying themselves. I was happy once, but now I'm dead. It's basically the plot. And then, of course, if we think about it, though, it's kind of strange that Lisa is like, mm, this is my favorite song. So she clearly has some sort of identification with it, which will become important as we progress. Um, but first, I just want you to sort of listen to this song first thing I want you to hear is how it sounds so different in contrast to the pastoral. This song sounds more like a Schubert um, leader. Um, for those who don't know, leader is German art song. And so these were being composed actually at the beginning of the 19th century. So again, not the 18th century anymore, right? So we all of a sudden have this leap in time. But then they also sound almost Listian with like the arpeggios she adds at the, at the beginning. Liszt being a very famous pianist in the 19th century was very famous as a romantic artist, but also for being very virtuosic. Um, so again, these are more associated with the, the romantic period than the classical period, which we were experiencing with the first song. So we've been jarringly wrenched out of our 18th century, and now we're all of a sudden in this very romantic, deep-feeling mood. And then what Tchaikovsky does is, again, throws us back into the 18th century. Um, so basically what we're about to see now is now he adds a folk melody in, um, a sort of Russian folk melody. Um, and you'll kind of very dis you'll hear from the melody that it's a, a single melody that everyone sings together in unison, and then they dance around because it's also a dance song. It's very clearly no longer in the realm of the, the moody Schubertian salon anymore. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
So we go there, which is lovely relief. And then all of a sudden, we're jarringly thrown back because now we're in, um, we have Lisa now talking about her. She's not really satisfied with the man she's supposed to be marrying, who is Yelensky. And then what happens is she talks about this mysterious man that she, of course, saw in the gardens the day before in Act One, who is, of course, German. And so I'm going to skip the beginning of the aria just because that's where she's sort of talking about her dissatisfaction. And then all of a sudden, we have this moment where the orchestra will make this huge change in texture and we'll hear all these beautiful arpeggios and this sort of um, it transports us almost as if into another world suddenly where she begins to talk about the night and the freedom in the night and her love in the night um, and why the night is also really important is because in the 19th century romanticism the night was sort of seen as the ulterior space of the unknown you could go and escape and experience your hidden desires so for her that is Gjermann but what's so interesting about this if we think about it is what you'll see at the end of the scene is German suddenly appears at her window, which is creepy. Um, but number two, did he really appear? Or is she projecting him out of her mind with this really, the music almost suggests a sort of uh, St. Petersburg magic that's going on. So it adds, it brings up these questions. So I just want you to, to hear this moment here. <laughs> scares the crap out of her, but... Um, another important thing to know about the night, for those of you who may have seen Tristan und Isolde, in that opera, in the daytime, they have to uh, obey the, the social expectations of whom they're supposed to love. So Isolde is supposed to marry the king, and Tristan is supposed to guard her. But then at night, they can give in to their, in, uh, their internal desires, which is, of course, their love for one another. So this idea of the night very much would then become associated in the 19th century with Wagner. And so again, interesting to see Tchaikovsky take it up because this was a very Wagnerian concept as well. Um, so what happens just after this, of course, as in typical fashion, when you enter someone's bedroom unannounced, you then declare your love for them. Um, and so when she sort of says, oh, no, 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 this is not going to happen. He says, oh, but I'm so in love with you. And I'm just, he basically begs her and, you know, says he's, he can't live without her. So what's interesting about this part is when he starts singing this, it all of a sudden reminisces a lot with the Schubertian uh, song that was played. So it's almost as if that... German is a sort of projection of her desire for that song, right? She said it was her favorite song. And then all of a sudden we go into this magic world in her aria. And then all of a sudden she projects his existence there. And why this is also important with foreshadowing is that, of course, German ends up being the catalyst towards her destruction, right? So the idea that at the end of that Schubertian song, right, it was about everyone else is happy around me and then I die. So it kind of is like Tchaikovsky's trying to give us this internal monologue and also make us sort of skeptical of what we're seeing. Is it reality? Is it not? Is it all just in Lisa's mind? Who knows? Anyway, so I'll play that for you to hear sort of how it's similar to that piano piece. Thank you. 
So unsurprisingly, she does not turn away his confession. Um, and so now I want to take you to my favorite part in, in the opera, which is this duet at the end of act two, where basically what's about to happen is he sings that and she's kind of like, I don't, I, she's still resisting. And then of course the countess comes in being like, why are you still awake? Go to bed. And what happens there is that you hear the countess's motif, the bum, 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 constantly underneath her. And then we kind of think, wait, is, the, is that motif there because the countess just entered or is it because Germán sees her from his hiding place, of course, because she doesn't see him there? Um, or is that Germán's projection of his thoughts in the music, right? And then what will happen is, of course, Germán will then actually sing the Trecarti motif as well as you'll hear the countess with him singing. So this idea that, is he really there for Lisa? Or once again, it's really just there for the countess and she's sort of a stepping block to getting that, right? Um, and then, of course, what happens at the end of this duet is this melody that is this sort of frantic love melody, which is so exciting because in a way it feels very Wagnerian with the momentum that it makes you feel toward the end of it, kind of like very much like the Liebestod in um, Tristan und Isolde. Um, but at the same time, there's something so unromantic about it because they never get to kind of sit and enjoy it. It feels like this sort of last minute decision to get together and it almost never really f sits well with you in a way. So it's this sort of strange moment where you have all these conflicting feelings and yet you're so drawn in by the music at the same time. So it's one of my favorite moments in the opera. I might cut this a little shorter just to warn you just because of time. But anyway, so at the beginning what you're going to hear, you're first going to hear German and he's going to say the Trecarti motif and then we're going to hear him all of a sudden when he says, I need to have that, the love melody comes in conveniently, which of course Lisa will then pick up once she's finally agreed to fall in love with him, basically. Oh, 
Armand Love motif comes back in the orchestra, of course. So I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. I love that duet more than anything in the world. Um, and I will talk about the soprano in a moment, I promise. Uh, so what happens right after that in Act 3 then, all of a sudden we're going to the ball, of course, where we're going to see Catherine. And then rather jarringly in Act 3, all of a sudden we open with this music that sounds very Mozartian, once again wrenching us out of the romantic sort of psychological place again and throwing us back into the 18th century. <laughs> So you're probably saying, Matthew, why are you saying all of this? We get it. It jars, like opera often does this sort of thing where it will do something that's trying to evoke the period it's in, and then it will play music that is, of course, more contemporary to the audiences. Um, well, it's particularly interesting in this opera because of the sort of confusion that happens among the characters in the opera. For those of you who've seen it, you'll remember that in Act 3, uh, there's the duet between German and Lisa when they meet up, of course, at the river because she says, we have to meet here because um, otherwise I'm going to kill myself because I have to see you and I want you to love me and give up this craziness with the three cards, basically. And what happens here, of course, is she sings this aria um, and saying you know, how distraught she is. And then, of course, the, the, the time that she said they would meet passes. And so she's getting ready to meet her doom. And then, of course, he surprisingly comes in. And then they sing this very traditional sort of um, duet, which is not so much as... Um, uh, as I would say, as romantic as what we just heard with the and then all of a sudden, halfway through it, Germán is kind of like, where am I? What's going on? i got to get out of here. i got to go use my three cards that I just got from the Countess, right? And so there's sort of this constant um, barrier between the characters, like almost like they're not all in the same time, maybe. Maybe they're all in different times, and as a result, they're kind of confused and never lining up with each of their desires. So what I'm trying to suggest, basically, is that Tchaikovsky is showing us musically with these really abrupt changes between 18th century sort of um, pastiche and then throwing us into this very 19th century type of music. He's trying to show us the very trouble that the characters are going through in themselves not being able, having conflicting emotions because they're just, frankly, not all lining up at the same time, basically. So that was beautifully quoted by somebody else, and I just stole that, basically. Another important thing to note is, so at the end, of course, that love motif comes back. And what happens at the end is that German uh, gets the three-card secret, and then he goes to the gambling tables, and he does it. And of course, the last card, he says, um, is going to be the ace. But then it turns out that it's the queen of spades, which, of course, was the countess's revenge. Um, and then at that moment, of course, he realizes, I've lost everything. And then he says, the only thing I should have lived for was love. And then, of course, the motif that comes back is the very, the, the love duet that da -da 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 -da, and ends the opera. Um, and what's is slightly interesting, though, is this idea that love can only be had in death, which is, again, a very Wagnerian notion, this sort of, in Tristan und Isolde, I, I know I keep going back to this opera, uh, but what happens there is they believe, basically, only when they die will they be able to be in love with one another because the social forces around them forbid them from reuniting. Anyway, I'll let you hear that little motif here. As you know, I always want to talk about voice, basically. So here, I just want to talk about the voices that have sung this opera, particularly in the 20th century, mostly because that's when we have all our recordings. 
the woman we saw sing uh, Lisa in the production we've been watching, her name is Tamara Milashkina. And she was a very famous Russian singer, particularly in Russia and at the Bolshoi, where she was very often a principal in, uh, I believe it was the late 60s through the 70s and then the 80s. Um, and she was a very famous Lisa among you know, Tatiana and Onyegin and things like this. And I just wanted to talk about this because, of course, many of you, I'm sure, know the social situation at that time, being that the Soviet Union was very difficult to go other places or to bring people in. And so why it's kind of interesting to listen to Milashkina is because she was brought up in a place where you had very particular influences, particular Russian influences. And as a result, when those singers came out and performed in America, for example, they'd have very, you could say, different technique or different ways that they interpreted things that we weren't as exposed to, of course, because there was this sort of barrier between these geographical regions. So you might have already heard very distinctly how she sounds kind of different from what we'd expect from maybe a, a singer coming out of Italy or France or something like that. And I think, I think it's a really exciting thing, despite the fact of that history. Um, so I just wanted you to kind of hear a little bit more of that. This was, um, it is notable that she did come in 1975 to, I believe it was at the Met, and it was the Bolshoi toured, and she performed here. And I know some people who got to see it, and I'm so jealous. Yeah. Anyway, this production, though, is from 1983 and is at the Bolshoi. Uh, this is Lisa's aria um, before she basically throws herself in the water. I just want to contrast this now. So you hear the sort of sound that she has. There's much more of a richer middle, um, I think, personally. And there's usually a darker sound, um, just based on the way they're taught. And then here's another example. This is our favorite, Morella Freni, who you know I'm absolutely in love with. Um, but at the end of her career, while she's taking on these larger roles, she then started to take on Russian roles as well. Um, she was particularly famous for taking on Tatiana in Eugene Onyegin, also by Tchaikovsky. And then later she took on um, the, Lisa and the Queen of Spades. You'll hear how the sound of the voice is, is quite different um, in the sense that she brings more of a, I would say, an Italian quality to the music, um, which she was very much lauded for when she did these roles. But the point to notice is that there's a difference and there's many different interpretations of this music. And I would not say that anyone is particularly the right one. want to contrast this one last time. And now, some of you actually may have seen this production. Queen of Spades was done in 1999 here at the Met, and it was done with uh, Galina Gorchakova, who was one, another singer who was particularly famous in Russia, and she recorded a lot with Valery Gergiev. And then she, of course, in 91, um, Russia was no longer the Soviet Union, and so the singers there could travel more freely, and so we got to experience them a little bit more. But it is interesting to then think about maybe some of the influences that they had and how that sort of began to mix with the sort of Russian style and then with other styles as well. So here is uh, Galina singing the uh, same section. Mm -hmm. 
So I will say I've taken far too much time gossiping about my favorite opera. Um, but I do also want to talk about Cabanova in this lecture. So I'm just going to now do a little bit more uh, talking about the context for Czech opera as opposed to Russian opera because it's slightly different. Um, so like with Russian opera, in the 18th century, also Czech opera was very influenced by Italian opera, unsurprisingly, as you've come to see this trend. Um, but it was actually also very influenced by German companies that were entering the Czech area because, of course, during the 18th century, uh, the Czech population was controlled by the Habsburg dynasty. Um, and so they generally wanted, as perhaps a sort of act of propaganda, they wanted them to see German opera and perhaps convert them to Germans, basically. Um, so this German influence can be best seen and also uh, best remembered in one of the most famous composers uh, of Czech opera, which was uh, Smetana. Um, who was actually very supportive of Wagner's ideas and saw it as a, a way in which to create and shape Czech identity and then portray it to the rest of the world as well as their own people. Um, what I have here, Smentana is here, and then this is The Bartered Bride, which you may have heard of, which is his most famous opera. Um, so this also combined during the 19th century with a similar trend that happened in Russia, which was the fact that the Czechs were now, it was very important to them to have their own identity and to distinguish themselves from the other cultures in Europe. And so kind of like the Russians, what they did was they saw this in the rural folk, the people who they saw as untainted by the, the more modern cultures that came, of course, to the middle class um, and those above them. Uh, and so it, it was sort of basically what was happening to the middle class at this time was they were sort of enthusiastically uh, grasping with uh, German thoughts and culture. And so, of course, again, what Smentana and many of the Czech composers saw was these rural people as being the purest form um, of Czech culture. And as a result, we see similarly what happened in Russian opera, which was that a lot of folk melodies were introduced in order to make it sound authentically Czech as opposed to Western. And so, although Smentana was an avid supporter of Wagner's ideas, there were many critics that did reject this idea and preferred perhaps to go back to a more Italian tradition to evoke Czech opera or a more authentically Czech one. And one of these people was Janicek, who we're talking about today. Um, and so in the 19th century, he really tried to distance himself from Wagner and also Smentana as a result. Um, and what he did was he actually created this sort of idea of uh, speech tones, which was this sort of uh, an idea of creating melody that sounded more authentically speech-like to the Czech language rather than sort of just imitating Italian ways of writing melody that were very much influenced by the way Italian speech is spoken. And so just a little thing I want to throw in there is that um, this, the speech tunes idea really influenced Yenufa, which was one of his, probably his most famous opera, which was composed in, or premiered in 1903. And it's interesting to note that that was very much influenced by the Queen of Spades. And the justification that Janicek had for this was he praised the Queen of Spades for its integration of folk melodies into these Western techniques. So it's kind of interesting to think about that. In Cabanova, what we'll see more so than Yenufa is sort of a return to this more, these more Western operatic idioms. Uh, we can see the influences of grand opera. We see Wagner's leitmotifs and orchestral opulence and complexity. We also see Tchaikovsky's relationship, which is sort of different from Wagner's in the sense of giving more authority to the voice. Um, and then we'll also see Puccini in there. Uh, and particularly his Madama Butterfly, because actually, while composing Cabanova, um, Janicek saw Butterfly and was very much uh, enamored with it. And we'll see there's actually some direct quotes that we're going to look at uh, from that opera. Um, and so the last thing I want to note now is uh, that Cabanova is based on a Russian play, um, and it was called The Storm. And the reason for this was that Janicek was very much a Russophile. And so at this time, what was happening were, was, it was sort of the question of, is Czech going to be part of Germany, part of Russia? And so Janicek was very much like, no, we need to be with our Russian brothers. Um, and so again, pushing away from this sort of German nationality that he saw as sort of crushing their own authenticity, um, if you may. Um, and so in picking this, this Russian play, what it actually centers on is this sort of rural family in a regional village, which as some of you may remember from Verismo, this was Italian Verismo, which Puccini, of course, was caught up in. Um, many of the plots wanted to focus on more of the, particularly the rural life 
and the real life of people and the poor. And so it's kind of interesting to see that Janicek, maybe in having seen Puccini perhaps, but was again picking up on this idea of naturalism in opera and focusing on these other stories that were before omitted. Um, and some, we might also argue when you see this opera that maybe he did it a little bit better than Puccini, whose opera is often, in the sense that Puccini's opera is often focused on still some very wealthy individuals, aka Tosca. Um, so this one is a little more moving towards this idea of naturalism and also the Russian folk. So what I want to do is just explore some of the music with you, just because this one's a little bit denser um, than a lot of the things we've explored in the sense that a lot, the, most of the leitmotifs are in the orchestra, and then when they do come out into the voice, they come out in parts. And so I just kind of want to take you through that. It will be a little bit difficult because I, I didn't use the score, particularly because I don't know how many of you can necessarily read the score, and I, I don't think that's... When you go to the opera, you're not taking out the score, right? So the idea is when you're watching the drama, I hope you can hear the music and sort of hear what it's trying to say. Anyway, all of that to say, um, at the beginning of the opera, we have this overture that's kind of like a miniature of what's going to happen in the entire opera. And so one of the motifs that we hear here is these very literal sleigh bells you'll hear, which is the idea of Tishon, who's Katya's um, husband, when he goes on a, a trip, basically. And that's sort of the catalyst for all of uh, her finding another lover and then, of course, being sort of oppressed by Tishon's mother and eventually leading to her death. Um, and so I just want to, we'll play that motif just so you can hear it. Uh, so you'll hear a, a, you'll hear a sort of a, a melody in the orchestra, which is a bum, 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 bum. And then it's bum, 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 bum. It does that. And then you'll hear some very literal sleigh bells. And you'll be like, oh, that's the Tishan leaving motif. So when we, of course, hear this motif come back is when Tishan comes in and talks to Katya, um, basically telling her, I'm leaving. Uh, and so, and she, of course, he says his mother wishes it, as you can see there. And Katya, of course, does not want him to leave because she has just sort of expressed to her friend that she has these desires to be with this other man. And she does, if she feels if Tishan leaves, she might take up those desires. Um, so in the orchestra, you're going to hear some sleigh bells. But then you'll also hear the bum, 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 bum. And it'll kind of, again, you'll hear how much more integrated and weaved it becomes. So it's not a literal sounding of each leitmotif like we heard more so in Tchaikovsky. <laughs> and so then, of course, he finally actually leaves. And we'll hear the motif again, just so it can kind of get in your ear in its many different contexts. Uh, it's a little, this time it's less focusing on the sleigh bells, and it's more the bum, 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 It's long. So what happens, of course, is Katya confesses um, when Tishan returns that she's had this affair, um, and she's very upset about it. And of course, all the people, she confesses it in a very public way, so the mother and everyone knows about it, and she feels very ashamed. Um, and so then she learns that basically the man she was in love with, Boris, as well as Varvara, who is the um, sister of her intended, well, I guess not her intended any longer, but the, woman, the man she's married, who's basically her only friend in this village, is what I'm trying to say. They're both leaving. And so she's kind of like, I'm all alone now. And so then she decides to throw herself in the river and, and, and kill herself. And what's interesting is when Tishon finally finds her, this, this sleigh motif comes back. So what is it suggesting, right? This idea that he was the catalyst, perhaps, towards her demise. That's the only interpretation I really have of it. But I'll just let you hear it here. This is where they're pulling her out of the water. Metaphorically, of course, because this production, they don't do that. So what's exciting with Janicek is you can really see how each time that motif comes back, you hear the same melodic contour, but he really sort of changes the way it sounds within the fabric to sort of suggest that time has moved on and there's a different way that they're, perhaps the characters are thinking about these ideas that the motifs signify. So there's the bum, 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 bum. So we actually hear this at the very beginning of the opera. And many critics have called, called this the sort of um, 
the ominous motif or the fate motif, or what I like to call the cabinaccia motif, which cabinaccia uh, is the mother. Um, and so what we'll hear, it's quite, I think it's easier to hear. It's in the timpani we'll hear. A bum, 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 bum. Timpani being, it's a very large drum. Uh, so you'll hear it at the very beginning of the orchestra. It's one of the first things we hear. So it's gonna, there's going to be some, uh, you're going to hear uh, the winds and the strings playing at the beginning here, and then all of a sudden underneath it, you're going to hear this timpani. Um, but why I bring that up, sorry, just to say again, is the beginning, you'll notice, of that sleigh motif, the sleigh motif that, of course, is the catalyst towards Katya's death, is that same motif, the bum, 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 bum. It's just sped up. So it's kind of interesting to think that now Kabinacha is connected with Tishan, and how is the music showing us all of those interconnections? Okay, so here, you're going to hear it in the timpani. Four beats, four beats. So we're then going to hear this several times throughout the opera. It's probably the most uh, prevalent motif in the entire opera. And one of the more poignant moments in which it happens, of course, is when Katya confesses to having this uh, relationship with Boris um, and not her husband, while her husband was away, basically. Uh, and so it's going to play immediately. There's a lot going on in the scene. It's very loud, but you're going to hear it immediately in the scene, in the drums again. You're going to hear bum, 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 and then... It's that, and that's because Cabinacha is basically asking, who did you have this affair with? And then she tells everyone. And then, of course, after that, she runs away. And then what happens is we have, Janicek creates this storm music. Um, because of, what, when this happens, is it's sort of um, escalated by the storm that's happening and everyone's very scared. Um, but what's interesting is the storm music is almost entirely composed of Cabinacha's motif. This sort of fate motif, this ominous motif, this oppressive motif. Um, and so this sort of becomes this metaphor that Kabinacha is this oppressive storm that you can't abate that's sort of causing these events. <laughs> storm is happening and you can hear in the orchestra it keeps going. It kept going there on the drums with a bump, 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 very ominous. Um, and so you'll be very unsurprised to know that at the end of the opera, after Katya's dead, what shows up? Ah, the ominous fate motif. So the last thing I kind of want to show you are these parallels that happen between Cabanova and Madama Butterfly. And so we can see that actually with Katya's very first motif. So I'm just going to play it for you, and then maybe some of you can guess what in Butterfly it sounds like. So this is at the very beginning, after Boris has sort of talking with his friend, being like, I'm in love with this woman, but she's married. And then, of course, lo and behold, she walks in the room. So it's a very similar treatment to how when Butterfly, which I will show you in a moment, 
uh, enters in Madama Butterfly. But also the motif itself is almost the same. As you'll notice, it's a sort of the stepward, um, first stepward down three notes, and then the butterflies goes up after that. But this one goes, this one goes, da, 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 da. So here is when Butterfly comes on the scene in, um, at the beginning of uh, Madama Butterfly. And again, you'll hear how the same sort of treatment of the, the, the motif constantly rising and becoming in a way more climactic, um, but also the fact that the motifs are very similar. So you can hear the similarity there, right? It's, it's the fact that he saw it before, praised Madame Butterfly, and then all of a sudden, whoa, just pops up in your next opera, which is very exciting. I mean, he, he definitely makes it sound very different, right? It's clearly not supposed to be, it's not a clear quotation, and it's very interesting. But I think it's, it's one of those things that's very interesting just to notice, um, and also think about the other influences that Puccini um, may have had on this particular opera. And then the last thing I want to show you is sort of this interesting motif, another motif that um, Janacek sort of takes from Butterfly, but very effectively puts it in a whole new texture. And this is a, a motif of love, really. Um, but the first time we hear it, which is kind of interesting, is when she's basically begging him to make her make an, uh, an oath of uh, fidelity to him while he's gone. And basically she says, you don't love me unless you do this. And we'll first hear this motif sort of rejected by him in a way because he ends up saying, I'm not going to do that, that's ridiculous. I'll let you hear the motif and then I'll show you it in Butterfly. It's in the love duet where you have the bum 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 bum. It's that part, as you'll hear in a second. It's basically she doesn't really sing it, she being um, Madame Butterfly, but you'll hear it in the orchestra constantly going off. So that's it in the orchestra. There it is again. Um, but I did want to say before ending is just how, well, it's been a wonderful experience and you've been a really wonderful audience, very receptive. And I'm glad that so many people felt the need, uh, A, to speak to me, whether it be after or before the lecture or frankly, during the lecture. It's really wonderful to hear what you guys think about opera as well. So thank you. You've been a very wonderful audience. Um, and hopefully I'll see you all again sometime soon in the future. Many thanks to Matthew Timmermans for taking us on a journey of Wagner across borders. If you have been listening to this four-part series, we would love to hear your thoughts. Let us know by emailing lectures at metguild.org or join the conversation on social media. You can find the Met Opera Guild on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.